Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our study of Ezra. We are in chapter six of that book. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, as we recall our Lord's words that the scriptures testify of him, in what sense have we seen that so far here in Ezra? Well, in a macro sense, Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple. And of course, we don't have to scratch our heads too hard to recall the importance of the temple as the place in which God dwells. So what the temple is, is a foreshadowing, indeed a type, of the incarnation. So you remember before it was the temple, it was the tabernacle. And what does John say? The word became flesh and tabernacle, dwelt, tabernacled among us. And so you can see then that God is tabernacled in the tabernacle. God is tabernacled in the temple. God is tabernacled in the flesh of Jesus. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so when we're, whenever we're talking about the temple, we're talking about the foreshadowing, the prefiguring of Jesus Christ, of, of God incarnate in our midst. And then, of course, the priesthood goes with that. Jesus is our high priest, a high priest par excellence. He needs no purification. He is already pure and purifies. This is the argument of Hebrews, for example. Likewise, Jesus is the sacrifice par excellence. In fact, he's the sacrifice that is so excellent it ends all sacrifices. And again, this is the book of Hebrews. So when we're thinking in terms of Ezra, first, we're astounded at the graciousness of God that so quickly he comes back to his people and wants to rebuild his temple and dwell with them again. Um, he was uh, patient slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for century after century after century, from Solomon all the way down to the final Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the temple. God was patient and long-suffering. No sooner has his, has his judgment finally befallen and severely, justly befallen his people. Just a few decades later, he's saying, come back, return, rebuild. I desire to dwell with you once more. Um, so that's what we see. And then in that desire to dwell, we see foretaste of Christ and prefiguring of Christ, the temple, the high priest, the sacrifice. So far, so good? All right. Now let's, we were up at 40,000 feet. Let's zoom all the way in. Dive bomb the text here. Uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Now you recall that finally through Darius, 
Um, God had God had sent his people through Cyrus, and there's all this kind of political machination that stood in their way. And then finally, Darius goes back into the archives, and he finds that, in fact, Cyrus did decree these things, and the temple is going to go forward and be built. That's what we've hit heretofore in chapter 6. We reflected at the end of last week's class on the need for good government and the need to pray for our governors, um, our left-hand, those who lead us in the left-hand kingdom. And then finally, we come to the fruition of chapter chapter 6, verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, again, Persian king, who uh, is occupying the land, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, we discussed that at length last week, and we seem to narrow that down to Jordan, the Jordan River. Shethar, Bozanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edom. So in these two prophets, obviously their books are are with us in the canon, um, you can see what they were preaching at this time. Interesting, too, that the very building itself doesn't just happen or happen as a matter of human resolve or national pride, but happens as a function of the preaching. Now, the, the word is always the center of biblical theology. Everything's always accomplished through the word. You can recall Ezekiel and the dry bones. They're raised, they're enfleshed by the preaching of the word. Here, the temple is raised and enfleshed, as it were, brought back to status by the preaching of the word. And so everything is done by God through his word. Of course, no surprise there. How did he create the, the heavens and the earth? Through his word. Everything is the word, the word, the word, and then the word became flesh. So yet another way in which we can see that these scriptures are all about Christ. All right. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Okay, just glancing down at the study note on 614, the temple building project went well and was finished. Of course, in regard to the Jews, these are the Judeans. Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, three Persian kings who took actions benefiting the temple. Some 50 years after the temple was completed, early in the reign of Darius, Artaxerxes contributed sorely needed funds for its maintenance when he sent Ezra to Jerusalem. Uh, Thus, you can see why Artaxerxes suddenly shows up there in the text. Um, when really properly we're still in the reign of Darius. Um, Dropping down to the note on verse 15, you'll see then the temple was completed February 21st of 516 BC. So roughly 70 years. That 70 years is a a loaded biblical number. Um, I'm not going to have a discourse on that right now, but there it is again. It shows up again. 70 shows up frequently. All right. Any thoughts, any questions? We good to go on? Good to go on? All right. Verse 16. 
Did you have a, did you have something, Barry? No? Okay. Verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. You know, interesting, because of course it's just Judah at this point, but the self-understanding is they remain Israel proper. They remain those who are faithful to God. Verse 18, And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Now this is interesting. Service of God. Service to God or service of God, service from God. There's an ambiguous genitive there. Um, now what, what we want to see here is who is the one that... Um, decrees and orders and creates the office of Old Testament priest? God. Yeah. So it's his office. Okay. And then who is the one who decides these are the people, it's going to be the tribe of Levi, etc. Who are These are the people who are going to serve. That's also God. And then who gives them what they're supposed to do? The sacrifices by which the people are cleansed? God. So you can see that, in fact, God has set this whole thing up in order to cleanse his people so that they might dwell with him. Yeah. And in fact, that, that act of God creating the priesthood, creating the sacrifices, cleansing his people, um, and then his people responding with sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise, and even those, God says, these are the ones that I accept. These are the ones that are acceptable to me. But we see that we love because he first loved us. We praise and give him sacrifices of thanksgiving because he has sacrificed to make atonement for our sins. And so we can already see what we will later call God esteemed, God's service, divine service, the divine one serving us. The heart of New Testament worship is already there. It's already the heart of the Old Testament worship. Um, wrong for us to simply take the pagan frame of, okay, there's a bunch of barbarians and godless people running around, but they believe in whatever made up God, and so they're going to shoot sacrifices up, and they're going to create their own priests, and they're going to have the priests do their things, and it's all from man to God. What's so unique about God in the Old Testament and in the New is he says, no, it's going to be me to you. It's going to, my priests are going to be my, the temple is going to be my house. The priests are going to be my household servants. The sacrifices are going to be so that you're cleansed so that we can dwell together. All right. So the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Interesting. So they're using the scriptures. They were using the scriptures as their blueprint and their scriptures as their understanding of what the, again, how are we going to do this? Because what happened when the temple was cut off? The priesthood was cut off. The sacrifices were cut off. How do we do this? Get out the book of Moses, the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and find out what we're supposed to do. So Leviticus obviously factors very heavily in this. But we have to, uh, we, go, we go back to the scriptures. We go back to the blueprint. Yes, sir. 
<laughs> while they were in exile in uh, Babylon, didn't they have the synagogue function where they were gathered together? And th is this where they read the uh, the Torah and you know? Yeah, that's that's um, my understanding is where uh, some of this originates. Yeah, yeah, the synagogue. Um, Vicar, you're fresher to, to all this. Do you re do you recall any details that you'd like to share in that regard? can't say with specificity, but I, I, I do remember hearing something to that effect, Pastor, and also that the, um, the Jews were able to, they were kept separate in Babylon. They were in their own communities. They were not intermixed with the Babylonians. So it's just, just like in Egypt when the sons of Israel uh, were kept in the northern territory. Uh, they, you know, they, they weren't just interspersed throughout the entire kingdom. It's the yeah. same thing in Babylon. Yeah. So. yeah. No intermarrying, um, not not even the strict principle being racial so much as the or something like that or ethnic or cultural, but religious. The parallel to us is if you're Christian, don't marry a non-Christian. Uh, you've really there's there's what fellowship does light have with darkness? Children of light and children of darkness. So that's um. So that's in play there. And so even though, you know, when in Rome, do in Rome, women in Babylon, do in Babylon to a certain extent, you got to get comfortable here, God says. Um, not so much so that we violate the fundamental principles of our faith, the fundamental principles of our God. And so intermarriage forbidden. Um, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a sense in which they're in their own communities. And then their way of remaining faithful is not through sacrifices, but through remembrance of God's word and remembrance of his deeds of old. And so, yeah, I believe that then this is the period in which the synagogues come about, that kind of thing, where um, you're get, you have faithful Hebrew people gathering to hear the word of the Lord and worship him in that respect. Okay, then uh, on to 19. The Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. The returned exiles kept the Passover. Of course, this harkens all the way back to the first Passover, which was the exodus out of uh, Egypt. There are some overtones, some parallels here. I don't want to overdo it because there's just, you know, at a certain point you touch one part of Scripture and you watch the ripples go everywhere and it's, you touch all parts of Scripture, okay? Um, but there are there there is a sense in which as they were brought out of Egypt to serve the Lord. Now they are being brought out of Babylon to serve the Lord. You see that hint, as I pointed out in, in verse 18. And now you hear again with the proximity, close proximity of the Passover, as they were brought out of Egypt, God institutes the Passover. Now as they are brought out of Babylon, this, this great Passover is held. So the returned exiles kept the Passover, verse 20, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So we're talking about a, a ritual cleanliness here uh, prescribed in Leviticus, I think chapters 21 and 22 or something, if I'm not mistaken. And so listen, the priesthood, the temple has been made right. The priesthood has been made right. Now the Passover is taking place. And of course, it's the Passover in which, that's the context in which our Lord brings his supper and the New Testament that is in his cup. And so we can hardly pass over 
the Passover, um, without mentioning the Lord's Supper, the New Testament in his cup, and the centrality of Christ. So the Passover remains the center um, and a key piece of, uh, of the Hebrew faith as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah and then fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so uh, middle of verse 20. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. All right, so there's a sense of separation coming out from, and that kind of becomes a powerful motif, even, even a motif for um, the age in which we find ourselves, where it's come out from them, come out from the pagan people, be gathered in. Today is the day of salvation, be gathered around Christ. Um, so you have that motif here. They're, they're gathered out of the pagan people, um, uh, separating themselves from their uncleanness, becoming clean once more. Obviously, you know, latent in the, in the background here, not so different from baptism, where baptism is our way of coming out and being washed of all our uncleanness and connection with an ungodly people and becoming children of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 22, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread, seven days with joy. Of course, that feast goes right after Passover, so this is a normal course. You're only allowed to eat um, unleavened bread. And since this isn't a class on Leviticus, I don't want to go into all of that. But you can remember then how leaven is sometimes compared to self-righteousness or false teaching. Um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so purge out the leaven of, of sin, wickedness, self-righteousness, false doctrine, and let us partake of the unleavened bread in sincerity and truth. You remember this kind of rhetoric from Paul um, and elsewhere in the New Testament, I believe. So, yeah, so that's, here you have the, uh, the unleavened bread that takes place right after the Feast of Unleavened Bread that takes place right after the Passover. So they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. That's the prayer we need to pray today. <laughs> Democratic, Republican, Libertarian, whatever you want to be, we all need to pray that whoever is up there, it, that God would turn their hearts toward his people and bless us and bless our nation. So that is our prayer. That is our prayer. It's a prayer we can pray no matter what, no matter who. So yeah, even the king of Assyria, unlikeliest of all allies, <laughs> becomes their ally because of God's superabundant mercy and God's superabundant power. You know, we should look to and we should say that because God can help and because God is willing to help, and because God is willing to even turn pagan peoples to the aid of his people, if he doesn't, we shouldn't shake our fist at the sky. We shouldn't think that there's something wrong. We should trust entrust ourselves to him that there's reason and good cause for him not to. Yeah. So that's the other side of this coin, is we see that God can. We see that God does. 
If God won't, we simply need to say, well, thy will, not mine. I trust you more than I trust myself, which is really rather easy. He's dealing with quite a bit more information, isn't he? He can see the big picture. What do we see? Not much of anything. Furthermore, he knows more than we could fathom. He knows what benefits and blesses those who love him. And he promises to work all things for our good. So we wait in patience, even if God's answer to us is, my grace is sufficient. Nope. <laughs> All right, and to recount, you know, even though this is a story and a testimony of God's grace and just all of these miraculous work, God working through pagans to bless his people, it would be remiss if we didn't stop and realize, though, this takes decades. This takes decades. You know, sometimes in our, in our day and age of instant gratification and instant change, and um, I know I fall into this trap of like, uh, I want the, I want the, nation to change. I want the church to change. You know, okay, I guess I can be patient if it's going to take three years, but I'd rather it all happen right now or in three months. Uh, you know, look at this. The temple is rebuilt. All of these starts and stops decades and decades and decades. And so, you know, it behooves us sometimes to just chill out. <laughs> Realize that our scope is like, you know, this. God's scope is like that. We want it all done yesterday. God's got all the time in the world. And so part of that is just to lean back in trust and recognize that, hey, he's got, he's got things under control. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to tear down so that you can build. Um, we don't know where we're at. We're not going to fight against God. We're going to relax, go with the flow, and trust ourselves to him and go about our business. So there's great comfort and calm we can take in his, uh, I think sometimes it's called providence. So I'm not opposed to that. And his providence, the fact that he uh, is, in fact, is, in fact, God. And in control of all things and good. All right, so the Passover is celebrated. The temples reconstituted, the priesthood's cleansed, in case you missed it. The, the Passover is celebrated. Everything is going great. If you flip over to page 730 on your Lutheran study Bible, if you don't have one, Amazon, Concordia Publishing House, you can, you can get one. For the, with inflation going the way it is, if you get in fast, you might get in for the price of three lattes. Sold. Sold. Done. So um, <laughs> on page 730, you have this great uh, drawing. And with the caveat, with the caveat that, um, you know, this is scholars piecing this back together. Okay, but this is, this is what the second temple, quote unquote, looked like. The first thing that's going to catch your eye is even though it's on the same footprint, you can tell that it is much more plain, much less ornate. Um, we know that from the text. Even as the foundation was laid, presumably some of the first stones, some of the people were weeping and, and wailing. Some of them were rejoicing because it didn't live up to the former glory. Now that it's completed, we see that it doesn't live up to the former glory. Overall, but still, there's been such a decades-long saga that there, everybody's pretty much rejoicing right now. If you look at that picture in the box to the top right, um, obviously you can see the, the stands of bronze, the quote-unquote sea, the bronze basin, brought back the altar of sacrifice outside of the, outside of the temple that the priests do twice a day. And then inside the temple, of course, you're going to have, um, in the picture to the lower, you're going to have the lampstands. You're going to have that guy with his arms outstretched in the center. Um, you're going to have uh, the curtain 
the cherubim reconstructed. Um, so you've got uh, you've got a glimpse of it there. Maybe just to read. So th <laughs> this is called Zerubbabel's temple. It's not frequently called that. Usually second temple. But they're doing that for a reason. And I think this is a little interesting. It'll it'll connect a dot if you haven't connected it already. So page seven thirty shown here is a much more modest reconstruction of Solomon's magnificent temple destroyed by the Babylonians in five eighty seven B C. It is assumed that this quote unquote second temple followed the original floor plan, but funds, you know, and it is assumed, it's, I guess it's not guaranteed, that funds were limited, craftsmanship was compromised, and its glory was in a spiritual sense only. Ouch. Uh, and that references Haggai chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Reconstructed cherubim here guard the ark as before, along with barrier tapestry, curtain or veil, lampstand, lampstands, plural, tables, and portico pillars. But the walls are plain with no hint of lavish artistry or gold. Um, and then just, where would it be? Well, let's drop down to that, that text. It's not going to hurt us to just work through that. Construction of the Second Temple was started in 536 BC on the Sol Solomonic foundations leveled a half century earlier by the Babylonians. People who remembered the earlier temple wept at the comparison, Ezra 3.12, we've been there. Not until 516 BC, the 16th year of the Persian emperor Darius, was the temple finally completed at the urging of Haggai and Zechariah. Archaeological evidence confirms that the Persian period in Judea was a comparatively impoverished one in terms of material culture. Later Aramaic documents from Elephantine in Upper Egypt illustrate the official process of gaining permission to construct a Judean place of worship and the opposition engendered by the presence of various foes during this period. So you find extra-biblical evidence corroborating all of this. Yeah. Not that we needed that. I mean, who's going if you were going to write, if the Bible was fiction, it would be boring fiction. I mean, who's going to write this in fiction? But obviously it's not fiction. And obviously that's corroborated for anyone who needs such a thing uh, by extra-biblical sources. Okay, of the temple and its construction, little is known. Among the few contemporary buildings, the Persian palace at Lachish and the Tobayad monument at Iraq el-Amir may be compared in terms of technique. Don't ask me what that is. Unlike the more famous structures raised in 587 BC and AD 70, so that's the one that Jesus um, prophesies to that occurs, the temple begun by Zerubbabel suffered no major hostile destruction, but was gradually repaired and reconstructed over a long period. Eventually, it was replaced entirely by Herod's magnificent edifice. So you remember the disciples walking along, look at the great stones, look at the ornate decor, which gives Jesus cause to say, all of this will be cast down, not one stone will lay upon another. Um, so where does that come from? Well, that's obviously Herod's edifice. And so this temple is, is in continue, uh, continued beatification. Um, up until the time of its destruction, and looks much different, we should say, too, in the time of Jesus in the first century, um, as it does here in uh, 
500 years earlier. All right, I found all of that interesting and edifying. Hopefully you did too. Any thoughts or questions you have in regard to what we read or the temple in general? Here's, here's a, a comment up here. Two things. Did the, did the Ark of the Covenant in, was in the, in the second temple or was it gone by then? I believe it's around. I Ooh. believe it's around. Oh, okay. Do you know? So this is artistic license. Yes. Yeah, great, great question. So the so it was a little bit as I suspected. We don't know. Mm -hmm. um, the picture has it there. Oh, okay. The yeah. other the other question so, is just on the uh, sacrifices. Did they have barbecue sauce? <laughs> no, not a good question. Not a good question. <laughs> no, if they did, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. So, to, I mean, to be more seriously, uh, as Vicar mentioned, I don't know that the microphone picked it up for those uh, viewing online. Uh, I mean, there are very, very uh, serious scholars and good scholars who assert that that um, it was not part of this temple. Uh, your burden of proof is if you think it was, when did it disappear? Yeah, so it's largely shrouded in mystery. I mean, I for one believe that it's in a a, a German uh, warehouse <laughs> <laughs> waiting to be discovered. Um, <laughs> just teasing, just teasing. Any Indiana Jones fans out there know what I'm referring to. Um, yeah, we we don't know. It's mysterious. So um, take that for what it's worth. Kind of a not kind of a non-answer there. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Yes, sir. Uh, going back, I, I really don't want to make too much out of it, but um, I don't know. Is there any? Would you say there's any significance to the fact that the uh, the temple was finished on the third day? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe so. What do you what do you read into it? All the way back in verse fifteen, the, the, the re, a, a tie in with the resurrection of the temple and the right. third day. Yeah, it's not a, it's not too bad of a stretch. It would be one of those real subtle illusions, I think. For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Thanks for pointing that out. I mean, it is kind of interesting that the temple goes through a a kind of death and resurrection. Kind of interesting. Okay. Um, that takes us into chapter 7, and now um, we finally get to Ezra. Heretofore, we, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe there's been a reference, but Ezra has not played a large role himself. Okay, chapter 7, verse 1. Now after this. There's three words in English that can... What does that mean? Well, if you drop down to the study note, now after this spans an interval of more than five decades. It's like, it's like an entire life now after this. <laughs> so five decades from the dedication of the temple in 516 to, quote unquote, the seventh year of Artaxerxes, which we're going to hit in uh, verse 7. So biblical record passes over in silence the years of Darius's successor, Xerxes, who ruled, it looks like, 486 to uh, 465. 
and he was the king at the time of Esther. So we jump over that period of time in which Esther, the book of Esther, and those events take place. Um, events recorded in the rest of Ezra and all of Nehemiah transpired in the reign of Artaxerxes, previously mentioned, of course, nicknamed Longhand. I don't know. wonder if he had a deformity. Probably not. All right, so that gets us off to a start. So after now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Bucky. <laughs> I don't think that's how you pronounce it. Son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Well, Aaron who? Aaron the first. <laughs> Aaron the first of the chief priests. So what are we doing? We're tracing through Ezra's lineage to show that he's part of the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 6. This Ezra, <laughs> not any of the others. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Ooh, scribe. We're going to come back to that. Um, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Again, that's going to be the Torah, the first five books. That the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. All right. So Ezra, obviously chosen by God, blessed by God. He's a student of the word of God. He's a student of the, of the Torah, sort of the Old Testament Bible within the Bible, if you will. And he, um, yeah, he, he traces his line all the way back to Aaron. And he is also called a scribe. Let me see if I can find where the study note talks about this, because I think that they, yeah, 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 yeah. There are people who suggest that he's the first of the scribes. Remember when the scribes show up in the New Testament? And if you've been kind of tracking with the Old Testament, you're like, well, who are the scribes? Yeah, they're always with the scribes. Yeah, I know. And the Pharisees loom so large, you almost picture like the scribes, like, like the Pharisees are, who are they? Like the senators? And then you get the little pages running around in their little jackets, writing everything down. I don't think that that's how it was, but that's how it feels. Okay, so what about the scribes? Poor people online. I'm just joking around. I'm just being silly. Um, okay, so if you look at the study note on verse 6. Yeah, it is 6. It's just buried in there. Half a century after the temple of stone and wood was erected, it was apparent that a rebuilding of Israel's moral integrity was needed if the rehabilitation of the chosen people was not to end in national disillusion. Yeah, it's not enough just to build the temple. You've got to build the people as well. Ezra was the man who cleared away the rubbish of abuses and laid new spiritual foundations. Okay, now to the point. Scribe. I'm going to make that mark in my Bible so I don't lose that. 
high-level official in the ancient Near East who functioned as a secretary, but also oversaw the temple treasury. Okay, so reference there is to 2 Kings 12, 10 through 11. Was sent on important missions and engaged in negotiations involving a knowledge of foreign languages. Again, reference to 2 Kings 18. Uh, this time, verses 18 through 27. A long line of scribes down to and beyond New Testament times, <coughs> excuse me, claim Ezra as the founder of their guild, devoted to copying, preserving, and interpreting the sacred writings. Okay, so thus then, scribe, he was a master in the scriptures because it was his job to copy, preserve, and interpret them. Yeah. And so now we see that the scribes, along with the Pharisees, were biblical experts and keepers of the word and, um, you know, experts in that trade. And then as, you know, that this is a high, high level and position of trust. What we might think of that as like a replacement of a copy machine. No, no, no. I, books are priceless. Scroll, oh, scrolls, properly speaking, are priceless. Um, you, I mean, these things, are, it's hard to even equate because if they're lost, what do you have to do? You can't just you can't just get on your phone and with about four clicks have Amazon send you one tomorrow. You know these things have to be painstakingly copied word by word by word, um, expense, time, etc. So this is a very very high level position of trust, a high level position of scholarship. And then all of that, if you've got men serving in that role in that capacity, then you could see how naturally this extends to other areas as well. And so you even have this sense of um, secretary, not so much, I think, in the sense of note taker as, or as rather one who keeps the secrets and the records, that's really what secretary means, of high and important officials, has them, has record of them, and then can be trusted to take forth whatever that dignitary wants done and execute it. So you probably have a kind of like shaliach, the kind of like what we would call um, power of attorney present in some of these scribes, um, such that you can go conduct business on behalf of the one who sends you. He gives you power of attorney. When, when he speaks, it's as if... Uh, it's as if um, when the scribe speaks, it's as if his master is speaking, that kind of thing. So that just kind of gives you a window, a broader window into scribe, and then how it seems that in many respects Ezra was functioning. He's given all these um, all these different job descriptions here, then the scribes are given these job descriptions here. So just interesting to flesh out our knowledge a little bit uh, in that regard, so that when we see the scribes show up in the New Testament, um, we can see who they are and and what they're about. I mean, imagine living in a world where you can't text somebody, you can't pick up your phone and call them, you can't write them an email. What are you going to do? You've got to have a trusted messenger to take that message, to not fiddle with it, and to deliver that message and to, to deliver it faithfully. So that, that, the role of messenger, and insofar as Ezra fulfilled that role or 
the scribes fulfilled that role. The idea of a shaliach is, is this role. And a lot of times when we read servant, we immediately think of it as kind of a demeaning thing. Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, sometimes that is the, the official formal messenger. It would be something more akin to a lawyer. It's hard to really even quantify it because, again, our communications are so easy and free. Imagine the most trusted communication you had to deliver. You've got to entrust this to a person. It might take days, weeks, months for it to get there. It can't be wrong. There's no, oh, oh uh, we have a question. We have a correction. Uh, something happened. Let me go back three months journey and get that sorted and come back another three months later. You know, so this is a this is a position of utmost importance and trust. And by the way, it's just important to think about all of this too, because this then is really at the root of what an apostle is. That language, apostle, um, from apostello, to be sent from. Um, this is this is the sense in which the apostles aren't errand boys, aren't mere messengers but are actually representatives of Christ. This is why he says, the one who hears you hears me, right? So they're imbued with this authority, and they must get the message out and get the message right. All right, well, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's too much on all of that. All right, so Ezra is a priest. Ezra is a scribe. Um, quite, the, uh, quite the man. Educated able to read, able to translate. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. All right, so Artaxerxes gives this to Ezra. Artaxerxes, king of kings, Ouch. There's only one real king of kings. But that kind of shows you the irony here. King of kings is serving the true king of kings, even though he doesn't acknowledge it. <laughs> Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Okay, he, the God. this is like titular for, it doesn't mean that Artaxerxes believed. It's titular for the God of Israel. He went by the God of heaven. And what was the foreign policy of Persia at this time? Um, placate all the foreign gods of all the people. Who knows? They could be real. They could be in charge. They, you know, it's not going to hurt. It might even help to just have all the gods of all the people be on your side. That's sort of what's going on here. All right. Very end of, uh, very end of verse 12. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Okay, here you can see the placation taking place. Like, hey, we're going to appease everybody's God. We're going to appease everybody else in the process. Like, this is kind of our national policy, or our governance here. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests, um, so those would be specifically um, Hebrews, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. 
All right. Well, there's a kind of plundering of the nations once more, a parallel to how Egypt was plundered and how Babylon now, who conquered them, is plundered. And everything's being retur returned and restored. The king has backed this with a letter, so that um, you know that grants that certainly grants some safety, some authority, etc. Verse seventeen: With this money, then, you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it, fa uh, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, <clears throat> requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine. How much is a bath? Six gallons. That's a lot of wine. 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. All right, here ends the letter of Artaxerxes to Ezra. Man, if that was put in your hand and you were Ezra, how would you be feeling? Pretty good. That's a sweet deal. Yeah. Um, if you look at the study note that on chapter seven eleven, it begins back at um, seven thirty one, page seven thirty one. It just does a nice job of summarizing, so so that I don't have to. <laughs> the letter of Artaxerxes to Ezra was written in Aramaic. The decree authorized Ezra to one journey to Jerusalem, accompanied by other volunteers. Two inquire about conditions there, using God's law as a guide. Three, deliver various donations, free will offerings, and temple vessels. Four, draw on the king's treasury for additional money. Five, offer sacrifices. Six, appoint judges and magistrates to teach and enforce God's law. I think that that's a great summary. So that's what we have so far. All right, so we have, um, we have 
In essence, here in chapter seven, as our introduction to Ezra, we have his office and his standing, and now we have the authority given to him by the king Artaxerxes, and、um, that takes us up to、uh, up through verse twenty-six. So far, so good. Okay with the letter. Right, a little bit further. Then, verse twenty-seven: Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Isn't that a great statement? So obviously, the thanks are given to Artaxerxes, but truly, it's acknowledged that it's God who's done this thing. It's God who's put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You have a parallel to this in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where all the glory of the nations is brought into it—not just the glory of one nation, but all the glory of all the nations is brought into it. So, a little bit of a type and foreshadow of that climax. Verse twenty-eight: And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Wait a minute. What kind of pronoun just showed up? There's a first person singular. The I just showed up. So now we have Ezra speaking directly, and that's what this indicates. So who's saying, "Blessed be the Lord"? Ezra,、mm -hmm. and I, he said, "I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me." All right,、um, we've got some time left. Okay, what you can tell in chapter eight, verse one,、um, is we have a from the heading genealogy of those who returned with Ezra. Again, I mean no disrespect whatsoever in in jumping over these parts. It's just simply so you don't have to hear me mispronounce names、uh, for the next seven minutes or however long it would take. Okay,、um, but you can see then in、um, chapter eight verses one through fourteen, we have just such a genealogy of those returning with Ezra verses. Fifteen through twenty, we also have a plethora of names. This is Ezra sending for the Levites. So just at fifteen, and we're going to skip over the majority of this. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel. Okay. And I think we get going here. <laughs> so he sends for the Levites, who are named in the verses following. All right. Once he is sent for all of these, that takes us to twenty-one, where there's fasting and prayer for protection. Okay, verse twenty-one of chapter eight. Then I proclaimed a fast there, at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God. To seek from him a safe journey for ourselves. I love this. The work begins by humbling themselves before the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? 
to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. I love it. No promises. God's a person. I mean, no promises in the sense of like, God's not a system. They can't say, well, we're going about God's business, so, you know, it's just assumed that God's going to uh, handle this. There's respect and honor and deference that we're dealing with a living God, with uh, with a the being of all beings whom we can hardly comprehend, and yet he, he interacts with us as a person, not as some kind of theological system to be manipulated, not as some kind of you know, grandiose uh, vending machine. You, know, you put in your two cents and get your reward. Um, he's a person, and so in this respect, that's what I mean by person. Um, and so they, they pray to him, they fast, um, and they ask his blessing. Interesting, too, that, look, he gives his testimony before, before kings, or at least before this king. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. I mean, this is a, this is a testimony to the king himself, along with, along with uh, kind of an interesting law gospel dynamic here. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So there's, a, there's kind of a, a proclamation of who this God is and what this God is capable of. There's law and gospel elements to that. And of course, this is who we're entrusting ourselves to. We don't need a soldier or horseman. So that in and of itself is a testimony to the king. So a really bold move, and um, because they humble themselves, it pays off, even though they've got all these riches and are unguarded, other than by God. And uh, he listened. They make it. Okay. Any thoughts, any questions? Still okay? Let me see if we can... Be pushing it to get through another section. Maybe let's just end a little early today. We'll just stop there and pick back up at chapter 8, verse 24. The Lord be with you.